Well, uh, it's great to see everybody again this morning. I hope you're having a good week. I hope God is doing something encouraging in your life. Um, I had a uh, guy from my church uh, text me on Sunday and say, Pastor, we don't like who you got to fill in for us. I had Scott Owen, uh, for those who know him, uh, I don't like who you had fill in for you while you were gone because he's preaching right at me this whole time. And I said, I said, leave me alone. I got my own problems with Josh Daggett here. <laughs> I said, leave me alone. And uh, I've, I've been greatly blessed by the messages so far. So thank you, Josh, and for your ministry and um, for the musicians. Thank you guys for leading us in worship. And, and uh, it's been a great encouragement to me. Uh, thank you for those who have been praying for my uncle. The update, uh, the surgery is going to be tomorrow morning. And so uh, we're looking forward to hearing how that went. And uh, I appreciate your prayers in that regard. Let's pray together, and then we will look into God's word this morning. And as we pray, would you turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, please? Genesis chapter 12. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for being the God who speaks truth into our fear. Uh, thank you for the work you're already doing in our hearts and in our lives this week. Uh, it's so encouraging to talk with people who... Um, share their testimonies of how you have uh, been with them in the midst of their fear. God, I pray that today as we come together that you would, again, through your spirit and through your word and through your people, encourage our hearts, challenge us where we need to be challenged, point us back to the gospel so that in all things our hope would not be in man, our hope would not be in ourselves, our hope would not be in our ability to figure things out, but our hope would be in you and what you've done for us in Christ through your spirit, through your word, and through your church. And God, I pray that you would, uh, as we come this morning, I know uh, we've, uh, it's, it's been uh, a good week, but it's already been a long week. I pray that you'd give us uh, the mental energy we need to focus, and that, uh, God, you would visit us here. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, in your spirit, amen. So as we're going through this study of Do Not Fear, uh, say it with me. We've been learning we fear what we fear because we're afraid of losing what we love. Fear is always a statement of value. It's always a statement about what I love most. And then say this with me. What we love and how much we love it determines what we fear and how much we fear it. Uh, when I love certain things, I'm going to fear losing them more than I fear losing the things that I don't love. And so, really, the answer to walking through uh, our various fears is about establishing what you love most. Do you love God? Do you value God? Do you value his plan for your life most? Or do you value your own plan for your life? Do you value your own priorities? Do you value the stuff that you have or even other people more? Today, we're going to be looking at the fear of the unknown. Uh, I am convinced that it is the personal mission of most youth pastors to see how close to uh, uh, terrorizing their teens they can come without actually legally crossing a line. Um, and that was my goal as a youth pastor anyway. And uh, one of the games we played quite often, I thought about doing it today, but I thought, no, somebody's, I'm going to get a nasty letter or something if I do this. So um, how many of you ever played What's in the Box? Do you, yeah, yeah, it's, just, it's evil, isn't it? So in this uh, game, uh, everybody in the audience can see what's in this box on a platform, but the person uh, who's playing the game can't. And so there's a box that they have, and they have to put their hands in the sides, and there's something inside that they can't see. 
And usually it's pretty benign. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. Um, one of the things I thought about doing, if we were going to do that, I was going to have like an egg with, a tooth, with several toothpicks in it. Or like a, a teddy bear. Or a bowl full of peaches. Or something like that. And you reach in and you don't know what it is. And your heart already starts to race because you're thinking, I don't know what's in here. Is this going to bite me? Is it going to be something I'm going to have to wash my hands of later? Is this going to be something embarrassing? What is it going to be? And as soon as you begin to feel that thing that you don't know, whether it be toothpicks and you think, oh, it's teeth, it's spikes, it's, like, it's a, an iguana or something, whatever. Um, or you, you feel the peaches and you're like, ooh, it's like guts or something like that. People just freak out. Why? Because it's often not the thing itself that scares us. It's not knowing what the thing is that scares us. The fear of the unknown, of what's coming that we don't know, is a powerful force in our lives. When we don't know what's coming, uh, uh, we, we become scared, we fear, not because we think the thing in and of itself is that bad, it's just we'd like to know. Like, just tell me what it is, and I'm fine. The fear of the unknown is the fear of what if. If you have ever changed or lost a job, if you've ever been waiting for a diagnosis, if you've gone through tough times in a relationship, or you've ever just tried something new, you know that feeling. What if I really am sick? What if I really am sick? I, I've been feeling this thing inside of me, and something's not right. What if it really is as bad as I think it's going to be? What if I can't provide for my family? I've lost my job. What if, what if we end up living in cardboard boxes down by a river? You know, what if? I, what, I don't know what's going to happen. What if that happens? What if that person leaves? Pastors, we know this feeling very well. What if I say something or do something and that person finally has enough and they leave? What will that mean for our church family? What will that mean for our programs at church? What will that mean if they leave? Or maybe you're in a relationship and your spouse is at that point and you're scared to death that they're going to walk out. Times have been tough and you think they're right on the verge. What if they leave? What if, I, what if my kids ruin their lives? I'm just at the beginning point of raising my kids. I have a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. But they're already beginning to make choices that will determine the type of person they're going to become. But some of you have teenagers. Some of you have kids that are even out of the house. And you watch them make decisions that you're just going, what are you doing? I'm seeing the decisions you're making, and it's not going to lead you down either a path of righteousness or a path of making you successful in your life. What if they make decisions that are going to ruin their life and there's nothing I as a parent can do about it? What if my kids ruin their lives? Or what if I made the wrong choice? What if uh, I'm presented with a choice and, and I could go A or I could go B and I don't know which one to do? What if I choose A and I should have chosen B? What will that mean for the course of my life? Many times we believe that if we just knew what was coming, we could handle whatever it was. It's not knowing that's killing us. So when God calls us to walk by faith during a tough season of our lives, for some of us, that is the hardest thing he could ask of us. Like, God, just, just tell me where it is I'm going, and as long as I know where I'm going, you know, it'll be tough, but I feel like I can endure. It's not knowing the end result that is causing the most fear inside of me, and that leads us to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, you may know this account very well. 
Genesis chapter 12 is one of the most important texts in all of Scripture. And that's not an overstatement. You cannot understand the Old Testament and then not the New Testament if you don't understand what's going on in Genesis 12. Genesis 12 is the most important conversation outside of the one God had with Adam and Eve that he ever had with a human being up until the time of Jesus uh, the Messiah. Genesis 12 sets the platform for how God is going to relate to Israel and why he's going to send the Messiah. He says in Genesis chapter 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, it was Abram back then, not Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse, or, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is such an important text because God promises Abraham three things. He promises him a land. He's going to give him the land of Canaan. He promises him descendants. Uh, we see this further developed in Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. He's going to give him descendants, he says, as numerous as the stars of the sky, as the sand on the seashore. And then spiritual blessings. That through the descendants, the seed of Abraham... All the people of the earth will be blessed. And ultimately, that points to which seed of Abraham? Jesus, the Messiah, who would come through this lineage of Abraham. So God promises Abraham three things. What were they? Land, descendants, and spiritual blessings. The entire Old Testament revolves around that promise. The covenant that God makes with the people of Israel at Sinai, we call it the Mosaic Covenant or the Deuteronomic Covenant, is an amplification of this covenant of land. It's going to be, okay, God promised land. Now, if you're going to live in the land, you have to abide by the law. If you don't, you're booted out. If you repent, you get the land back. Descendants, the Davidic covenant that God makes with David, is an amplification of this uh, promise of descendants, that God would not only give him descendants, but it's through this descendant that he's going to send Jesus. And then the new covenant is an amplification of the promises of spiritual blessings. It's through this new covenant that God is going to bless all the people of the earth. So like I said, Genesis 12 is a huge text for understanding the rest of the trajectory of what God's going to do through his people. But we know how the story ends. Abraham doesn't. All Abraham knows at this point is, get up and go. Where? Text doesn't say. How long is it going to take to get there? Have no idea. Text doesn't say. God just says, get up, and I'm going to show you the land. You just go. Well, what is he going to do when he gets there? Don't know. Get up and go. Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to do or to obey when we don't know where it is we're going or what it is we're doing? Why is it that we let the fear of the unknowns or what-ifs eat at us and keep us from doing what we're called to do? It's because, ultimately, the unknown is uncontrollable. That's why we like to at least know. Like, if I have cancer, I'm, I'm devastated, but fine. I can deal with it. It's not knowing if I have cancer that's the problem. Like, if my spouse is going to leave, that's going to be hard and it's going to hurt, but 
okay, let's just rip the band-aid off, and now I know, and I can make decisions. The unknown, however, is uncontrollable. We can engage what we know is coming, but we can't control what we don't know. And as people, we are uh, obsessed with control. I just, I want to be in control. I don't want anything to happen to me that somebody else decided that I didn't have a say in. I want to control my body. I want to control my destiny. I want to control what others do that affects me. I want to be in control. Why? Because what is out of control and the desire for control is the root of the fear of the unknown because what is out of our control puts us at the mercy of another. What is out of our control puts us at the mercy of another. If I have to depend on somebody else for my direction, I don't want that. I want to be in control of my own future, my own destiny, and what happens to me. But as we saw over the past couple weeks, people are not in control. God is in control. God's sovereignty, uh, I, I get told often by people when I preach on God's sovereignty, when I preach on his election, when I preach on his predestination, Pastor, don't, don't worry about those things. We're just going to witness like God is not sovereign. We're going to just act like God is not sovereign. Yes, it's in the Bible, but we're going to pretend like those passages aren't there, and we're going to function as if it's all out, up to us. You know, the whole uh, pray uh, knowing it's all up to God, but work as if it's all dependent on you. The problem is, God's sovereignty is on every page of Scripture. I can't not preach on God's sovereignty because I would have to preach from a book other than the Bible. It's everywhere. Every page. And the Lord said, and it was. And the Lord said, it will be, and it was. And the Lord did, and this happened. It's everywhere. God is sovereign. God is ultimately the ultimate cause of all things. Remember what we saw in Romans 11? For from him and through him and to him are what? All things. God is sovereign. And so the hard truth is that ultimately, when I let the fear of the unknown stop me from doing what God is calling me to do, it's God I'm mad at. I don't want to be dependent on God for revelation. I don't want to be dependent on God for my destiny and my future. I want to think that I have more power over my future than I actually do. I want to be in control because if I'm in control, then yes, if I fail, it's on me. But if I succeed, I get the credit. It's the reason us guys don't want to ask for help for directions, right? Because then it puts me at the mercy of another person. It's the reason all of us don't like asking for help, really. Guy or gal. We don't want to be at the mercy of another. We don't want to owe anyone, anyone anything. We don't want to admit our limitations. But yet when the fear of the unknown comes and we become crippled by not knowing what's going to happen and we don't even know what to do in the moment, that's just devastating to us. One of the hardest parts of my schooling career was when uh, I was taking Hebrew. And for those of you who, who know the professor of Hebrew, yeah, okay, I'm just saying. Um, and uh, so I was taking Hebrew. Uh, I was living about 50 miles uh, from campus, and I was going into school three days a week. And uh, because I was pastoring at the time, I did almost all of my Hebrew homework at night, at about 10.30 at night in my office. And the, the office at my house didn't have heat, and so in the winter, I would have like two pairs of sweatpants on and two pairs of sweatshirts and gloves at my computer. 
<laughs> I'm trying to work on Hebrew. It was not a good experience. The hardest part was when I'd get stuck, and because I'm working at 1030 at night, I couldn't call up Dr. Little and be like, hey, buddy, question for you. That would not have gone over well. The hardest part is when I know I'm supposed to be doing something, but I don't know how to get there. It's so frustrating when I'm responsible to do something, but I don't know how to do it. I don't know what's coming on the test coming up, and I cannot prepare for that to, uh, adequately. I can't know what's coming. How do I function? And for every area of our life, it is scary when all we can worry about is now, and we can't worry about what comes next, because then we're not in control. So how can I face the unknown with confidence that my choices are wise? Well, we're going to outline Genesis 12 together this morning and walk through what God called Abram to do and how Abram responded. Look with me, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 again. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And in verse 4, what's the response? So Abram went forth. We see that in verse 1, go forth. Verse 4, so Abram went forth. As the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, Lot was his nephew, now Abram was 75 years old. Remember what we said about not retiring from God's plan until you get to heaven, right? 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. And, and this text seems so matter of fact. God said it, and Abram what? He did it. The first principle that we find is that we need to obey what God says. We obey what God says. God gave Abram commands to go, and Abram obeyed. God also gives us clear commandments in his scriptures of things that we are supposed to do. While we all want to know the big plan God has for us, which we often call God's will, God also gives us many commands that are clear that are just as much God's will. They are straightforward and understandable. For instance, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Man, should I, should I sleep with my girlfriend or boyfriend or not? Should I move in with my boyfriend or girlfriend or not? I better pray about this. No, like you have the statement. This is God's will for you. Don't commit sexual immorality. I don't have to pray about it. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to get counsel about it. God's clear. I need to obey it. We see the same idea later. He says in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 18, In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I don't have to pray about it. Should I be thankful? You know, should I be bitter? Should I be thankful? i, I, I got to have a conference call about this. No. God's will is that I be thankful. That is a clear command we see over and over and over. Join and serve your church. Forgive. Share the gospel. Don't gossip or complain. Serve those who wrong you. Don't commit adultery. These are all clear commands 
from God that reveal what God calls us to do. We don't live by feelings when trying to approach the future. Now, we talk a lot about not living by your feelings. There's a popular slogan, facts don't care about your feelings, and I get that. We don't want to say feelings are wrong. God made us with feelings, amen? It is not wrong to have feelings of fear. It is not wrong to have feelings of sadness. It's not wrong to have feelings of anger. It's not wrong to experience feelings. We were made with feelings. But I don't let my feelings determine my actions. They... They help me experience my actions, but they are a horrible standard by which I make choices. Why? Because one moment I feel this way, the next moment I feel this way. Why would I change my direction based on how I feel when how I feel can be affected by bad pepperoni pizza the night before? Why would I do that? Feelings aren't bad, but feelings are not the basis of decisions. What is? Jesus said in John 17, 7, Sanctify them in the truth. Your, what? Word is truth. I make my choices based off of what God says, not what I feel about what God says. What do we see in Genesis 3 in the garden? God said, but instead of listening to what God said, says in Eve when she saw that the fruit was desirable to make one wise, she was hungry, she wanted it, so she thought, well, my feelings are a better barometer of truth than what God has said to be true. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. My fear of the unknown stops me from doing what God uh, calls me to do because I'm more concerned with how I feel about what God is calling me to do than about what God says to do. You don't know what is going to happen in your future, but you do know what God has commanded you today. That's why Jesus says uh, in the Gospels, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. You will never have full peace about obedience until after you obey. You will never have full peace about obedience until after you obey. See, I often want the garden vegetables before I plant. Right? I have a garden right now. By the way, I always thought that uh, Bugs Bunny was the hero of the cartoons. It's not. It was Elmer Fudd all along. I cannot get rid of these stinking rabbits from my, my garden. They come in and they eat. They, they keep eating through my plastic fence holes this big and then the birds come in i can't i can't do it i want the vegetables before i plant i don't want to have to wait because the, the rabbits and the birds are going to come eat them all i i honestly expect when i get home this week i'm not going to have much of a garden left okay so i'd rather just have the fruit before the root but joy and peace are called the fruit of the spirit not the root of the spirit they come from obeying god not as a prerequisite to obeying God. I don't experience the joy of the Lord until after I have obeyed the Lord. We get this principle, I don't have it on the PowerPoint, but we get the same principle from Psalm 34, verse 8. It says, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, how happy are those who take refuge in him. When do you experience happiness, it says? After you what? Take refuge in him. You see, but I want the, the joy of the Lord, that happiness that comes from obeying God before I take my refuge in him. That ain't how it works. 
I'm called to obey God, and God gives me the joy and peace that comes from obedience after I obey. I am called to obey what God says, but then number two, pursue what God allows. Pursue what God allows. Look at Abraham, uh, Abram at this time again. Abram, uh, Genesis 12:5. Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. You notice everything Abram did, we don't see that in God's explicit commands in verses 1 through 3. God told Abram, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. He didn't tell Abram what route to take, didn't tell him what to take with him. He said, look, here's my command, go. And then Abram had some choices to make. He was responsible to take what he needed for the journey. He was responsible to take the people that he needed to take. He determined the direction that he would take to get there. God told Abraham to go, but not how to get there. He made choices all along on what to pack, what roads to take, what hotels to stay at, etc. God gave options, God gives options, and calls us to use biblical principles and wisdom. God gives us uh, commands, but then often it's not black and white in how those commands are carried out. I'm to be kind. That's the command of God. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. How does that play out? I need to use biblical wisdom. I'm called to uh, avoid sexual immorality in my life. How does that play out? I need to use biblical wisdom. I'm called to uh, encourage and challenge other people in my local church. How does that play out? I'm called to use biblical wisdom. I'm called to make choices. Here's some questions I ask in everything. Number one, is this sinful? I, ha- I have what God has said to do, but is this particular way of doing it going to be sinful or not? Is God given some command that would disqualify this? Is this sinful? Letter B, is this helpful? It may not be explicitly sin, but it may not help my fellow Christian. It may not be helpful to me or it may not be helpful to my fellow Christian. See, is this loving? Is this going to show that I love others more than I love myself in the choices that I make? Or lastly, is this wise? These questions help me make wise choices. They help me pursue what God allows but hasn't been explicit in. See, God directs our steps in his big plan as we walk in his revealed plan. God directs our steps in his big plan as we walk in his revealed plan. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 9 through 11. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Does that say we shouldn't plan our way? Like, don't make any plans. Is that what it says? No. 
It says, but the Lord directs his steps. A divine decision is in the lips of the king. His mouth should not err in judgment. A just balance and scales belongs to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. In other words, yes, you, you make plans, you're responsible to be wise, but it is God who ultimately directs the direction of your life. Sometimes we look at everything as a sign, right? I mean, the sky is blue today, so God wants me to buy the blue car instead of the gray one. Whichever college letter comes first must be a sign that that's the one I'm supposed to go to. My feelings, I feel this way, so this must be God's will for me. But as long as I'm obeying what God has said and applying biblical principles, I'm free to make choices. And I shouldn't obsess over, did I make the wrong one? Look, were you being faithful to what God has revealed? Yes. Was your choice sinful? No. Was it helpful? Yes. Was it loving? Yes. Was it wise? I thought so at the time. Yeah. Well, then stop freaking out about it. <laughs> as long as I'm obeying what God has said and applying biblical principles, I'm free to make choices, and God works through such choices to bring about his plan for us. We have freedom to make choices we desire as long as we are not violating biblical principles. One of my favorite quotes by St. Augustine, he said, love God and then do what you want. Love God and do what you want. In other words, once you get your priorities that my commitment is first and foremost, what will please God, what will honor God, if that's at the center of all the choices I make, then everything else falls into place and I can do what I want. Love God, as long as that's controlling everything I do, it will shape what I want to do. That's Augustine's point. If I love God, it will shape the desires of my heart so that I do what is pleasing to God, even while I'm making choices. One example of this is as I was choosing which school to go to for graduate studies, I, th my wife will tell you, this was, a, this was a, 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 an intense period in my life. I wanted to go into, I actually, I never wanted to be a preaching pastor, never wanted to be an academic, I wanted to be a counseling pastor. I wanted to just counsel all day and just one-on-one -on -one discipleship with people. That's, that's my heart. I love this one-on-one -on -one discipleship with people. And it seemed like that's not how God was leading in my life. The only opportunities God was giving me were academic opportunities and preaching opportunities and senior pastor opportunities. And I'm going, but God, I really want to do this. And so it came time to decide which avenue I'm going to pursue for grad studies and well, I wanted to do this Doctor of Ministry in Biblical Counseling. It's where I'd always kind of thought this is where God's leading. And God just kept opening more doors to do my Ph.D. work in theology. And I'm going, well, which one do I do? And this was causing me a lot of grief. Because if I do this one, then I'll miss out on those opportunities. If I do this one, then I'll miss out on those opportunities. And I don't know which one to do. And I was getting uh, ulcers and all kinds of things. It was just, it was driving me insane. And I went to see one of my uh, former professors at Faith who looked at me and said, so Dry, you choose one or the other. Is God up in heaven going, oh no, he chose the wrong one. <laughs> what am I going to do? My plan for his life is over. Is that what God's doing? That's Dry, huh? Do what you want. And it took me a while to go, okay, this is what I, I, I feel like God is calling me to do. You know what? My choices I've, I've run them through a biblical grid. I really feel like this is something I want to pursue. He looked at me and went, fine, then do it. 
Stop freaking out about it because God works and directs our steps as we obey the things he's told us today. He lets us make choices based on what we want. Number three, we trust what God plans. We trust what God plans. Again, Genesis 12, 2 through 3. What did God promise him? He had promised him to go. And then he said in verse 2, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse you. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You know, Abraham never actually saw the promises of God fulfilled in their completion. I mean, we're still waiting for the promises of God to be ultimately fulfilled to Abraham. We believe that at some time in the future, Jesus is going to come and he's going to reign on earth for a thousand years. This is the fulfillment ultimately of this Davidic covenant and ultimately of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham never saw those things. He had to walk by faith. He had to trust that what God said was going to come to pass and that what God said was worth following. It's interesting in John 8, uh, the classic text where Jesus said, before Abraham was, what? I am. He says before that, he said, your father Abraham, he said to the Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they go, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham. And he says, truly I say to you that before Abraham was, I am. And it says, and they picked up stones to stone him. Because what was he doing? He wasn't just using bad grammar. He was saying, before Abraham was, I am, I am. The construction of the language there would actually be, ego, a me, I myself, am, I am. They knew exactly what he was calling himself. They picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy because he was saying, the reason Abraham looked forward to seeing my day was because I'm the God that he was looking forward to seeing. They got it. Abraham moved forward because he believed God. He didn't know how God was going to keep his promises, but he knew he believed God. God made promises to Israel throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah 29, okay, it should say Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. That's God's promises to the nation of Israel. He goes on to say in Isaiah 46, verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Those are promises of God for the nation of Israel. But he makes promises to us as well. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And what's his promise? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He makes us this promise. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4, through 4, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life, that's eternal life, and godliness, that's living like Christ, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. He has given us these promises 
to inspire us, to motivate us to keep moving forward in our Christian walk. I know what God has called me to do in his word explicitly. I obey those things. And as long as I'm obeying those things and applying biblical wisdom, I don't have to fear what the future holds because God is directing my steps. I can trust him. His plans are not to harm me. His plans are not to lead me into a path that will lead to my destruction. His plans are to use me to make a difference. We have to trust that God's way is better than ours and that no matter what happens, God will not abandon us. Have you ever heard the phrase, trust the process? Trust the process. You just got to trust the process. Well, that's true, and it's very much not true. Because if I'm trying to trust the process, as I know Pastor Josh is much better at basketball than I am, I, uh, I wrestled so I wouldn't have to chase a ball. It's just right there, and I didn't have to go after something. Uh, the process, if I'm trying to learn how to, make three, how to sink three-pointers, and I'm shooting them like this, I can do that a thousand times. That process is not going to lead to any type of success, right? That's right, okay? If I'm not learning how to square up, line up my shot, use good form, if I'm not engaging in the right process, no matter how many times I do it, it's not going to get me anywhere. If I shoot three uh, pointers with terrible form, no amount of practice makes perfect. But we as Christians aren't called to trust the process. We're called to trust the person who has called us to a biblical process. Faith, as we're often told, is not believing that God can, but believing that God will. And I want to take issue with that this morning. When I was, in, uh, was seven years ago, uh, many of you have seen our, our daughters running around here. We have a nine-year-old and we have a five-year-old. Uh, many of you probably don't know. We also had a daughter who would be seven today. Uh, she was born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which means that the left ventricle in her heart never developed, so there's nothing to pump the blood to the body. And uh, we knew that when she was going to be born. And she was born December 20th, 2011, and she died February 2nd, 2012. And um, we were in the hospital for those full six weeks, and it was just, it was, oh, it was an intense time. And we would go through ups and downs where we thought, oh, they're starting to make progress, and then there'd be major downs, and then there'd be a high, and then there'd be another major down. It was just exhausting. And I would pray, God, please, please spare my daughter. Please heal her. Please, God, I know you can do it. Please. And one night, um, she had had a particularly bad crash, and um, things had finally kind of mellowed out. And I went back to the Ronald McDonald house to try to get some sleep, recover, and get ready for the next day of another round of this. And we went, I, I, I sat in the, the living room area in the chair, and I turned on the TV, and I turned to inspirational Christian television. <laughs> yeah. And um, a certain Texas preacher came on who, who uh, apparently buys stock in Colgate. And, um, you know. And he got up and he was preaching on God's will for you. And he said, Franz, 
If you're experiencing suffering, that's not God's best for you. You need to walk by faith. And I said, hold the phone. You're telling me that the reason my daughter is suffering is because I don't have enough faith? Are you kidding me? God is not obligated to answer the prayers I give. He's not obligated to do it the way I want him to do. This whole idea, faith is not believing that God can, but believing that God will, that is not a biblical concept. That is presuming on what God wants to do in my life. Here's a much better definition of faith. Faith isn't believing that God can, but believing that God will. No. Faith isn't believing that everything will be okay, but it is about being okay no matter how things turn out because you trust that God will be enough even if you lose everything. Faith isn't believing that everything will be okay, but it's about being okay no matter how things turn out because you trust that God will be enough even if you lose everything. Job says, though he slay me, yet I will serve him still. That's how I move forward in the face of the unknown, believing that no matter what happens, whether I get this diagnosis that I'm dreading or whether it's a wonderful diagnosis, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. Why? Because God is with me. If my spouse stays, if they leave, it's going to hurt. But I will be okay because I'll still have God. If my child continues to go down the path they are, man, it's sad and it's hard. But I'll still have God. If my job goes away and I don't know what's going to happen, I'll still have God. And as long as my hope for joy is in these things I'm afraid of losing, I'll never have joy. But when my hope for joy is in pleasing God and enjoying my relationship with Him, that no matter how life goes, I can be sad but not devastated. The fear comes because we struggle with this. We really want to have both God and the thing we love most. And if we're honest, given the choice between the two, we'd rather have that thing than God. Whether it's relationships, health, life, security, or whatever. But Paul says in Philippians... But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to point out two things. Paul says, I count all things to be lost compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. What are those all things? In the verses before it, he says, if anyone thinks they might have reason to uh, uh, take confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, of the nation of Israel, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as the law, Pharisee, as the zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness found in the law, blameless. He's going through his job resume and going, look, you think that you have reason to take confidence of the flesh? Here's my resume. Here's the things I am and have done. Bing, bang, bong. And then he says, they're nothing 
compared to knowing Christ. But notice he doesn't just say they're nothing. What does he count them as? Loss. He doesn't say these things are neutral, like they just don't matter. He says they are a loss. Now, in the financial world, you can have three options. You can either make a gain, you can have no net change, or you can have a loss. He's not saying these things are a gain, and he's not saying these things are no, no change. He's saying these things count against me. Why? Because they make me tempted to find my righteousness in something other than Christ. They're not neutral. They steal my joy because they become false gods and God substitutes. But he says, I count them as lost for the sake of Christ. The second thing I want to point out is the language Paul uses here. Us, us Greek students in, in Bible college love this passage. So it says, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That's a really docile translation of what Paul is saying. Some of the other pastors are going, <laughs> okay. Paul is using a very crass word for poop. That's in, that's in the Greek language. That's what the word means. He's saying, that's what these things are. These things are on the level of a dung heap to Paul. That's the value he finds in these things now compared to knowing Christ. And yet these are the things that I think make me a somebody and that you think make you a somebody and that you think give you security so you can control what you can't actually control. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You're missing the whole point. When I value God, when I value Christ and what he has called me to do, when I'm obeying what he has said and I'm pursuing what he allows and I'm trusting him for the future, I can be okay even if persecution or sword or famine come my way. Because my hope isn't in those things. My hope is in knowing God. So here's my question as we close tonight, or this morning. What could God do in your life if the fear of the unknown wasn't holding you back? Maybe God is calling you to pursue something, but you're going, you know, I... I feel like this is definitely where God is pursuing or is, is, is leading us, but I don't know what this is going to look like in 10 years, and I'm afraid to take that step. Or maybe God is leading you, whether you have a choice in it or not, towards something in your health or your relationships or your church. And you're going, I, I just, I'm scared. And I don't know how to make good choices right now that will, that will shape the future well. Start by obeying what he has said now in his word. Pursue what he allows and trust him for the future because he's worth trusting. You know who's not worth trusting for your future? You. You have no control over it. Jesus says you can't even add a single year of, your, uh, of life to your life. So why do you think you can control tomorrow? One of the things I've learned in ministry is that people are crazy. You can never anticipate people. Just when you think, I have crossed all my T's and dotted all my I's, there is no way this person is going to take this wrong. Like, they get mad at you way out of left field, and you're like, I didn't even see that coming. Right? Why? Because you can't anticipate people. You can't anticipate life. All you can do is trust God. You can be faithful to what he's called you to do. You can pursue what he allows, and you can trust him for the future. Amen?
Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your grace in our lives. God, it's so hard to 